Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Tanner Greer, author of the Scholar Stage blog. Uh, Tanner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. So Tanner, by, by way of introduction, I'm curious to ask you, when you, when you look back at the, the, the work and writing you've been doing for, for a long time now, what is sort of the, the thread that you've kept on pulling? Or maybe another way of asking the same question is, what, what do you think is the unique perspective that you keep you know, wanting people to understand, uh, you know, that will enable people to see China or Chinese history or Chinese politics in a, in a new way or our relationship with China? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know if there's a, are, are you familiar with the essay about foxes and hedgehogs? Yes. I tend to think I'm a little bit more on the foxy side of things. So I, I don't know if there's one giant grand insight that I have that explains all of Chinese history, all of Chinese policy. But there are ideas and themes that I think have been over the last decade or so maybe underutilized, um, especially when analyzing the contemporary Communist Party. Because on my blog and writing, I also write a lot about like old Chinese history just for fun. Um, but one of the main ideas that I've tried to run with, and I'm not the only one, I've taken a lot of inspiration from people like Dan Tobin, Nadege Roland, Peter Mattis, some others I could name is that if you're going to try and understand the Communist Party of China, you should take their own documents very seriously. They explain their own ambitions and ideas in it, in these documents, in these speeches. And if you take them seriously, you can learn a lot about what their intentions for the world are and how they think about the problems they have in both inside their society and in interacting with the, the world outside of it. Yeah. And, and is it fair to say that on an individual level, or is this a gross simplification to say on an individual level, you know, Westerners having reached some level of uh, prosperity, or, or many of them are, are trying to be sort of, you know, uh, live a fulfilling, meaningful life, whatever, whatever it means for them, and, and they invent new ways to, to, to try to do that. Um, and then on a macro level, you know, trying to, you know, uh, keep the world peaceful and, and, and democratic, and, and that's on a Western perspective, and on an Eastern perspective, that on an individual level, they're trying to be, you know, wealth rich, basically. And on a macro perspective, they, by their own words, say they're trying to you know, be the, the center of the world. Or, or perhaps, what, what would you edit there in terms of my sort of radical simplification? So, if, just make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that there's a difference in, like, average motivation from the individual level, and then there's a larger difference in maybe worldview idea of what they want to accomplish at the political level. That, yes, between that, America and China. Yes. I mean, yes and no. I think, I think in China is very large. <laughs> and you, sometimes you hear people call China like a civilization state. I, I don't think that's a wrong word. What it means, though, is that there's extreme diversity within China. Equal to, say, Europe, right? It's hard to say, oh, all Europeans, all the way from Hungary to Great Britain, all have these same ideas, ideals, whatever. There's large numbers of people in China from very different backgrounds and who have very different political beliefs. I don't think it's easy to say Chinese people believe this or they all have this. 
On the other hand, they are led by a fairly authoritarian party that tries very hard to keep all of its party members on the same page. And so at the macro level, I think it's a little bit easier to talk about what China wants in terms of what the Communist Party wants for the future than it is to talk about like individuals. And yeah, that they do want a future where China is kind of at the center stage. And most Chinese people probably want that too. But the Communist Party is quite explicit in, in charting out that ambition. There's this book Dominion, which, which by Tom Holland that talks about how, um, he, among other things, you know, a lot of Western culture is sort of Christianity without Christ. And, you know, the West is motivated by the, you know, writers of the Enlightenment and then before that, Christianity. And that sort of informs a certain, you know, political philosophy of, you know, sort of civil liberties uh, and the, you know, the benefits they bring, but also sort of the, you know, all, all people are created equal and, and, and sort of, you know, values that Christianity had. What are some of the equivalents on, on the, on the, on the, in terms of understanding China's political philosophy and, and sort of the intellectual foundations for it? I would say, okay, with the caveat that I just gave about how there is a large amount of diversity within Chinese political thought, an interesting way to maybe conceptualize this question is what is the question that various philosophers, philosophies, political movements are trying to answer? In, and in USA and America, there like a lot of it has to do with freedom. What is freedom? How do we get freedom? Different definitions of freedom often are the central battle space of, of ideology. In China, since the 1900s, they've had a kind of a different question that has engaged them. And it's a reflection of what happened to them in the 1900s, where the Qing dynasty kind of comes to a crash, multiple rebellions, the country is victimized by imperialism, but not totally taken over by it. And so early intellectuals in the late 1800s and early 1900s basically have this question, which is how can China survive? How can China compete with these foreign powers who are coming from across the world and trying to dictate to us how we all run our country? How do we stop us from becoming more or less India, which is gobbled up by the British Empire, uh, or Vietnam, which is right next to us? How do we modernize? How do we survive? And you can kind of think of Chinese politics from the 1870s to now as being this quest to create a country that is modern, powerful, and rich. And that by being those things, China will no longer be victimized, but will kind of be restored to a position that a lot of Chinese feel like it once had. In the past, China was this place that other nations look up to for its technology, its culture, its status. And they would like China to return to something of that state where they're not, being, they're not having things imposed on them from the outside and where they're able to compete and exceed what other countries are doing. And almost all Chinese political debates end up coming back to this point, even when there was lots of, say, if you go back to the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, you had, China was full of different people. You had socialists, you had the communists, you had more or less people who wanted to do a American-style uh, democracy, 
you had people who wanted to like radically federalize China into different parts based off of language group or whatever. But all of them claimed that by doing this, we would be able to save China. How do we save China? And then we're going to be able to make China strong and great again, rich for its people again. There was a different ends that mean. The Communist Party of China still claims it's uh, pursuing this goal. In the 1940s, they said they had a, a famous slogan where they said only socialism can save China. And that was later expanded to only socialism can save China and only socialism with Chinese characteristics can develop China. And that's what they want to do. They, they call this, the, the communists call this, this arc back to this preeminent position in the world, the road to national rejuvenation, kind of like make China great again. And that's one of the base assumptions of Chinese politics and most Chinese political discussions, that this is the end goal to which we're like trying to work for, as opposed to, you know, say America, where we might talk about how the end goal is to secure the freedoms and happiness of our people and maybe the free world on top of it. That's probably, I think, the first and most relevant distinction. It's interesting. One can think of, or maybe in and out, is like China is like the startup with a chip on its shoulder. It's like Uber or something, I don't know, where it's just growing so fast. And yeah, maybe it's making some ethical violations along the way. But come on, if you're, the, if you're at Uber, you're, you're, just, you're getting so much richer and you're happy, perhaps because of that, or you're willing to forgive certain things. Whereas America is this incumbent is, is that is having is like Google is having like employee revolts <laughs> and uh, people are like questioning, you know, at employees itself are questioning its existence and it's, you know, it's rights or it's, it's credibility as sort of a hegemon. Is that a fair, a fair analogy? Yeah. I always feel like Google is, is still a little too cool to be in the United States, right? <laughs> we might want Microsoft or IBM to be yeah, yeah, our <laughs> American example. Um, I, I don't think that's wrong. I do think a lot of Chinese kind of, a lot of educated Chinese in big cities, especially part of this upper middle class, they will have a, they see the future as theirs. It's just a matter of timing. And they're very excited to kind of grasp that. Not, not everyone in China is so excited or so optimistic, but especially among younger people who grew up in the world of socialism with Chinese characteristics, the, the, the post-Dung era, a, a lot of them are very, very in this kind of startup mode. They, they really believe the future is theirs and they're going to just kind of rush forward and do things. I, I think the uh, older people, including the leadership, like Xi, Jinp Xi Jinping and other people like him, are, are quite a bit more risk-averse yeah. And a lot of what they do, like these human rights abuses, are, are actually symptoms of this, this really, really great fear of chaos, things destabilizing, and so forth. Hmm. And is, is that America used to have this, but just lost it after the Cold War? Is that basically like once you're the dominant you know, player with no, with no sort of you know, uh, existential threats or, or perceived existential threats, you, you lose that edge? Like, do, do you see China ever losing that edge? Or how do you, or that chip, so to speak? Well, 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 maybe we need to define our terms a little bit better. Like when we talk about this chip, what specifically do you feel like the Chinese have that the Americans lost after 89, 91? Maybe th this idea of, of make the country great again, that can work. For, uh, or maybe, sort of maybe the, perhaps a sense of humiliation that's you know sort of inspiring a a, a resurgence. Whereas 
make America great again just doesn't resonate with, you know, half the country because. But it does resonate with half, which is impressive in its own way. I think, um, I think that really America right now is, if we're going to kind of compare the countries, is maybe a little bit closer to where China was at in the very late 70s, where there's a sense of uh, ideological disillusionment um, in America. You know, the, if we were to go back to the early 2000s, and I'm writing a book about America from 2003 to, to now, and so it's on my mind. America was very ambitious. We were going to remake the entire world. And most Americans believed that we could. It was just a matter of what means should we take to do this. After the failure of the Iraq War, the Great Recession, the consequences of kind of um, a lot of the industrial places falling apart. And to an extent, I would say maybe the failure of Barack Obama to bring about significant and lasting change. All these things led to very great ideological disillusionment on the part of the American people. And the Chinese, especially if you're a young Chinese person, you don't really have that. The the Chinese who lived through the Cultural Revolution and kind of saw that ideology be torn apart in front of their own eyes, they had a very strong period of disillusionment. But if you're young, you've only seen China go from strength to strength. And so, yeah, why not? You can rebuild the world and you will. That's what you believe. Mm-hmm. The, um, there was this belief that as China got richer, it would liberalize um, and, and become you know, more democratic in, in spirit. And, and that hasn't happened as, <laughs> as much as people or as much as the West would have liked. Is, is that obvious in, in retrospect or, or, or why didn't it happen? Or was there some alternate universe where, where it could have happened? Um, and if, if so. I, I think there was an alternative universe where it could have happened. Um, and we should like maybe closely define our terms here because not everybody who was a part, like some of the people who advocated for in really close engagement between China and maybe the Western order, like say Bill Clinton, were very explicit in the idea that, oh, like they, we will liberalize China. They can't stop the internet. They experience economic freedom. They'll want to become politically free and so on and so forth. But not everybody, especially a lot of the mid-level officials, they didn't have that same expectation. Uh, but they thought you could maybe change Chinese behavior. You might be able to incentivize them to become like what the Bush administration called a, quote, responsible stakeholder in the world order. But even they thought, well, okay, maybe over a long time, China might liberalize in the same way that the Taiwanese went from more or less being a dictatorship under um, Chiang Kai-shek's son to a democracy or the Koreans had a similar transition. That, that took two or three decades. There was thoughts that it didn't have to be like a revolution, but something like that might happen. China might slowly start shifting towards the international norm. And the reason I say that there might be some other world path where this might have happened is I think the Chinese Communist Party believes that themselves. I think they felt really threatened by this strategy. And we know that because they reacted to it. We made this gambit. Let's open up to them. And they they knew what we were doing. They read those speeches by Bill Clinton that were saying why he was opening up. They knew that we hoped the party would kind of 
loosen up, liberalize, lose its grip on power, and maybe become a normal political party or normal according to West democratic norms with the opposition and all that kind of stuff. They knew exactly what we were doing and they decided to do something about it. And starting around 2008, 2009, they start taking some fairly decisive actions to try and stop what they viewed as a strategy of economic and cultural subversion of their, their authority and power. And a lot of the things that we really are upset about today, including the internment camps in Xinjiang and the attempts to like, stamp out Uyghur culture, are, are more or less a direct result of these decisions by the party to try and regain control of the ideological sphere. The censorship of the internet and their control of those things, the stamping out of religions and crazy regulations there, the narrowing of discourse that's allowed inside China, all of this was a very deliberate attempt to fight back against the strategy they saw. And likewise, these when we like hear about influence interference operations where they're trying to controlled discourse, especially among Chinese diaspora communities abroad, as part of the same strategy. This idea that they're not going to turn their back on the world, they can't close like they did back in Mao's time, they'll they'll fall behind technologically, scientifically. And so they're going to try and control definitely inside their country, the ideological domain, and increasingly they're going to try and go outside of it and control ideological threats at their source. That's their strategy. It's possible that they wouldn't have reacted this way, that they would have accepted what we had done. Our problem, the real nativity on our part, is that we didn't realize that they had made their choice. I remember in 2015, John McCain, 2016 actually, John McCain goes to the Sri Lanka security dialogue in Singapore. Sorry, the, uh, it's not called the Sri Lanka Security Dialogue. It's called the Shangri-La Security Dialogue in Singapore. And he gives a speech saying the Chinese have a choice. They can choose to accept our order and live like normal civilized countries, or they can rebel against it. And that will have consequences. And he said that in 2016. They, they had more or less made their choice in 2008, 2009. By 2012, when they did their... Um, took over the islands and Scarborough Shoal, it was really obvious what choice they had made. Our mistake wasn't making this gambit, making this strategy. It wasn't a bad strategy to try and change them. Our mistake was was not in making this strategy, making this gambit. Our failure was in failing to recognize when it had failed. And it took us much, much too long to kind of catch up to what the Chinese were doing and thinking. Totally. I want to ask two sort of related uh, questions. One is there's sort of the Steve Bannon uh, camp critique of China. And my understanding is that it, um, you know, the asymmetric trade policies have led to sort of, you know, hurting the, you know, American worker and then also, you know, have put them at sort of a strategic, you know, you know, foreign policy advantage. And I guess I'm curious if you could unpack his critique and or that camp sort of critique and where you disagree with it. And then I want to talk about what we think U.S. foreign policy could have, how it could have been different in the past, you know, 15, 20 years. If we, you know, knew what, what would have happened, what, what might have we done differently? So 
I don't follow Steve Bannon very closely, at least not since he left government. It kind of seemed clear to me he's a bit player now. Uh, but the general, maybe we call him like the super hawk take, is that, which, <laughs> frankly, if you've listened to the last speeches of the last four weeks or so, the U.S. government has more or less endorsed. Um, there's been speeches by the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, the National Security Advisor, and the Director of the FBI, all on the threat that China poses to the free world. And their idea is that China is both economically undermining the American people by stealing our industrial capacity, and that they are communist ideologues who see themselves in complete tension with the liberal world, and that they have a desire to kind of overthrow it, put themselves to the top, and un- like destroy the American way of life, more or less. And that this is the greatest threat to American freedoms and interests that we have faced since the Cold War. I, I agree with parts and disagree with parts of this conception. The Chinese do see themselves as possessing a system that is kind of, at the end, not something that can be reconciled with liberal norms and the liberal international order. They believe that order is hostile to them, that the world, the internet, and its current norms, that a lot of international institutions, and the broader discourse about rights, freedoms, and the trajectory of societies things like democratic peace theory, are all hostile threats to the stability of their party and by extension, their mission to restore China to its ancestral greatness. That does not translate automatically into a, oh, the Chinese are going to try and like make little mini Chinese communist parties all over the world in the same way that they did try to do that in the Mao era when Mao was funding insurgencies all across the world on, on Mao's lines. They've decided that's not a winning path anymore. That, that's not what they, in this world, at this current historical moment, their documents talk about how this is a time that is marked by certain inevitable trends of history that cannot be turned back. Um, and these include globalization and the economic integration of different parts of the world together into one whole, the uh, what they call multipolarization, the idea that you're going from a universal hegemon to multiple poles of power through, distributed in the global system. And the idea that using military power aggressively against other countries has very limited returns in the current order. As an example, they might think of something like Iraq. And so in this international environment, they kind of, the way Xi Jinping talks about it, this is, these are kind of like the ground rules of the international environment they live in. These are, these are material forces that can't be changed, only adjusted to. You can ride the wave. If you swim against it, you're a fool. And so the strategy they've kind of developed is we, is they, they call it the path of peaceful development. And the central idea is that they are going to try and link their development and their economic growth as close as possible to the rest of the world's so that the economic interests of the rest of the world and the economic interests of China are the same thing. When the world develops, they develop. When they develop, the world develops. 
And the reason why this is a strategy that they, they like so much is that on the one hand, it helps them become more rich and more powerful. And those two things are connected. They take 2% of all their economic growth and, and plow it back into defense spending. And they take 2% and plow it back into internal security, like those camps in Xinjiang. And the other thing, though, is they realize that if, if there are actual contradictions and in interests between China and the other countries involved, they want to be in a position where the economic benefits of being on China's side are so great that no other country would put other interests above it. American alliance system might dissolve away. That's the world they want to have. There are no economic alliances. There's only partnerships. And China is the center hub of these partnerships. Uh, they promise they will not be a hegemon because they consider the word hegemon in Chinese. It, it, it's the word ba. It means kind of like a bullying person, somebody who has power and influence through coercion. They're doing a new path, a new strategy. But it, it's not without coercion. Uh, because they can cut you off from your development and from your economic growth if this goes out as they would like it to. You almost might say that in the world that China wants to make, everybody is the MBA. And in this world, they don't need to go to Africa and Southeast Asia and implant the Communist Party of China in like a little minuscule versions of itself everywhere. Maybe countries... People in those countries will look at China and say, look how well they've done. Let's try and copy elements of their system. We should go to China and learn how to do censorship like they do. Or learn how to do development planning like they do. That, that's what they expect. Uh, they don't expect that they're going to be, they're not in this ideological conflict to like, redefine the future of every government in the world. In maybe the way that America and the Soviet Union were in the Cold War. But it has ideological elements. Uh, they because they think of America as an ideological threat and they think of free speech and free association in countries where there's large numbers of dissidents or researchers who are anti-China also as an ideological threat. And, and you even see that with things like the MBA, right? Where the MBA, you have one person do a tweet and then they, they freak out and try to punish the entire country. I mean, the entire um, industry for what that one guy said. Or when the Nobel Prize goes to someone they don't like, and then they're going to punish the entire country of Sweden for what that guy said. They, they, they do have an ideological element to what they're doing, but it's kind of a defensive thing. They want to silence debates and ideas they think are dangerous to them, but they don't care that much about what other people are doing as long as it's not an a ideological threat to themselves. Yeah. Some people worry that um, or, or claim that sort of wide swaths of academia are effectively bought off by you know, Chinese agents or, or, or um, and uh, other elements of sort of American business. To what extent do you have any commentary on on whether that could be true or is or isn't? And, and going back to uh, what do you think uh, our policy towards China, if we knew what we knew now and we can go back, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? How, how could that have been different if you, you were determining that policy? Well, let's talk about that one first. It's a little bit easier. Because uh, people sometimes ask me this, right? I, I'm kind of China hockey, as you can kind of see. I, I do think they pose a, a fundamental challenge to our systems, um, and they want to control certain parts of our, our citizenry. The answer is that for each thing they've done wrong, we could have done a, like a proper counter response. So I'll, I'll just give you like an easy example. Okay. 
Um, when the Scarborough Shoal incident went down in the early Obama years, when uh, basically there was a disputed shoal that both the Philippines and China claimed, the United States didn't have a, a position on who owned it, but the Chinese seized it. Uh, the Philippines couldn't really resist. And then they ended up building these big giant artificial islands on the places they seized and kind of militarizing what had previously been a kind of just a, a purely territorial dispute that might've had coast guard ships going back and forth every once in a while and harassing fishermen, but, but nothing too serious. And when they did this, they also, um, as people at the U S Naval war college like to point out, it was effectively one of the largest seizures of territory in, uh, modern history, modern history being like the last 400 years, um, at least, and especially after the World War II, because the amount of sea that is controlled by these islands, you know, given the uh, EEZs is really, really large. And we, you can kind of compare our reaction to this event to our reaction to when the Russians went into Crimea. Uh, when the Russians went into Crimea, we put on sanctions, we did all kinds of stuff to forcefully push back to show that this was not okay. This is breaking our norms. This is breaking what we're the kind of international society we're trying to build. In China, that wasn't the case. Uh, we more or less did nothing. We gave a small diplomatic protest. We didn't send out our navy to help defend an actual ally um, by treaty whose territory was potentially was being stolen. We did nothing except say, well, okay, maybe we can get an international arbitrator to come and, and, and figure this out. And uh, that's like an easy example. Like, like just push back where they push forward. Uh, we should have probably given sanctions to various Chinese companies that were involved in, say, the dredging and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you can do this for everything. Uh, the Chinese go out and say, we're going to start doing internet censorship. We could have at that point said, okay, maybe it's not worth it for us to be economically engaging and giving funds and money to these institutions, organizations, and companies that are part of this process. We, and you can do this kind of case by case by case um, for each one of the examples that comes to mind. Even when they would kick out our journalists 10 years ago, we never kicked out anybody in response. We, there was nothing proportional. There was always this argument that, oh, we need to like empower the moderates. We don't want to mess up this relationship. The business thing is really important. We need to become more engaged with them, try to get them to see what's the responsible path without ever trying to impose costs for when they diverged. Now it's very hard because they're very powerful. Uh, you, you add up their economic growth year after year after year, and you're in a very different situation in 2020 than you were in 2008 or 2009 or 2010 or 2011 or even 2013 or 14 where the situation would have been much easier for us to do kind of piecemeal pushback um, and then of course you know maybe we shouldn't have let them into the WTO and all that kind of stuff and I, I think in retrospect that was a mistake but in the year 2000 it's hard to it would, it would have been really hard to see how it was going to play out so I'm forgiving of the people in 2000 who said okay let's, let's try the WTO thing but by the time you get to the second half of the Bush administration, first half of Obama, that, I don't think that excuse holds anymore. And, and you've been ringing this, this, this alarm here for, for many years on, on this topic. Oh, uh, yeah, at least since 2014. Yeah, I would say that. I have at least been trying to get people to pay attention to what the Chinese 
actually have been saying. I mentioned that McCain gave that speech in 2016. And it's in my memory so much because I wrote a response to it in my blog called China Does Not Want Your Rules-Based Order. More or less explaining how Chinese people think the rules-based order that we have is designed by default to hold them down. How the Communist Party of China thinks it's not very reconcilable with, with, with their long-term ambitions. They want to seriously adapt or change it. They'll keep parts of it they like. They don't want to totally overthrow it. They'll, they'll keep the parts of it that are useful to them, but they want to change large parts of it that they don't like. And I was just trying to shake people and kind of say, look what they're saying. See that they don't, there is no debate in China. There is no moderates and extremists who are like dueling it out over these things. Like they've decided and their actions have shown they've decided. Their documents show they've decided. Now it's our turn to decide what we do in response. And that really didn't start until Trump. Um, Nowadays, the conversation has shifted so much that even if Trump loses power, I'm fairly sure that we're going to, everyone is more or less a hawk now. Uh, But even the Biden people are are fairly hawkish. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. It seems that the U.S. is so divided that, uh, you know, one side is, you know, certainly if Trump is for anything, you know, people are against that and, and, and vice versa. And also, I, th- I think they, ha- they have a strategic reason, which is, and this is why so many people support the NBA, I think, which is, hey, we have domestic issues to, to be concerned about. And to the extent that, you know, one highlights an external issue, that, you know, means that there's less attention on that internal. If we have to unite as a country and fight another country, that, that means, you know, how are we going to solve the the disparities that we that we have internally. So I, I think there's a strategic... Well, a lot of the Biden foreign policy people turn that equation around. They say, how can we go out and be an example and fight this ideological fight if we're not willing to reform ourselves and get our act together? Because we're in such a state of internal disarray that it's very hard for us to go out. And there actually, there's some merit to that. But look, if you want to see who, who are some of the biggest China hawks in the country, who are people who have been dissenting against China since 2000. People who didn't vote for that bill let China into WTO and put a lot of pressure on Trump to be very hardline in the trade war negotiations. Do you know who two of the congressional leaders were in that effort? Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. These people have been anti-China for two decades. And if you look at the Obama-Biden people, if you look at people, like, I'll just like throw some names out there. It's like Eli Ratner. He was uh, one of the, he's a Biden guy. And he's going to likely going to have a very senior position in this, in a Biden administration if Biden is elected. He wrote an essay for foreign affairs earlier this year, more or less saying, we got China wrong. And here's why. And here's like what we need to do different now. And it's pretty hawkish stuff. So, and or even if you were to, this, just this week, if you look at The Atlantic, they had an, an essay critiquing Pompeo's speech on China. And you can see how it's actually pretty hockey. Like it's, it, it, does, it, does, it, it has to make fun of Pompeo for the obvious Trump reasons. And it criticizes him, like the Trump administration, for kicking out or making all this instability in Chinese student lives. But at the end of the day, they take a very hard line. It's not at all like Obama people were in 2013-14. Uh, there's been a sea of change. Y- yes, they'll be less hawkish than the Trump people. Um, but 
nowadays, and to be fair too, the Chinese are part of this, right? In 2016 is when all the stuff involving Xinjiang started becoming like public aware data. People were able to see what was going on there. Xi Jinping declared himself more or less president for life um, 2017. The NBA thing happened just a year ago. Like all these things kind of added up to create, I believe, a fairly durable change. I could be wrong. We could have a civil war. Who knows? (laughs) Well, I I just think the NBA stance is going to be the norm, which is to, uh, you know, half the country is going to think to be negative on China is to be uh, racist (laughs) or or you're xenophobic. And um, it seems that like even right now, you know, we don't have the political will to ban TikTok. Uh, there's a New York Times article you know, suggesting that if you ban TikTok, well, then you have to ban all the other you know, Chinese app, major apps. And, and thus, you know, you're going to have your, a great firewall of your own. Well, going with the NBA, that had condemnation from both sides of the aisle. It was, it was quite widely like, reacted to on both sides. I, I think that's an example of bipartisanness going on, not an example of dividing things. Well, was, it, was it good business or not good business for them to do it? Like they're still doing it, right? They, they, they pursue their um, business interests, right? Well, so are, are we talking about the NBA or the politicians? Because they're yeah, slightly different. Yeah, the NBA, the NBA. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I think, yeah, so I, I expect more organizations to follow suit. Or just like what you said, every org, you know, China wants every org to be the NBA. And, well, yeah. I know that, that's right. So, so the NBA, I mean, ultimately most, like, they, they tread a very fine needle there. If you want to really choose, like, a cowardly example, I'd go Blizzard, right? <laughs> but um, who had similar issues at that exact same time. And they, they totally caved to the Chinese. Yeah, But in terms of, like, I, I don't see it as, oh, you have Republicans on one side, then you have the business people on the other. It's more like you have politicians on one side and a lot of business people on the other. But the politicians, I think, have limited patience now with the business people. And a lot of what the Trump administration, China hawks right now are trying to do is create things that can't be easily undone or at least it can't be undone without getting equal concessions from the, the Chinese in the future. Uh, I, I think that's more or less their strategy. A lot of them feel like maybe they won't win this next election. So we're going to try and break a lot of things while we have the time. And it will be hard for Biden, even if he wanted to, to step down a lot of this stuff. Um, and frankly, a lot of businesses are trying very hard to get out of China as fast as they can. It, it's not a good environment for them. If you're Apple, you don't really have a way out, right? But everyone who can get out is trying to get out. Yeah. The um, I want to zoom out a little bit. You know, there, there. Some people have concerns that in U.S. there's sort of, you know, sort of emergent, uh, you know, new forms of communism, <laughs> be, being sort of um, po- popularized, and um, from more of a so- uh, social perspective. But that, of course, is very different from how Ch- China used the word communism. So I guess I'm just curious to go deeper there. Maybe you could talk about sort of what is the relationship between Marx style communism and, and, and Chinese uh, communism as they perceive the word or, or even just, you know, mm. the ideological foundations for how it was practiced in Russia versus China and the relationship there. Okay. So the communist party of China is a communist party. It describes itself that way. It, very much highlights that in all of its documents, its constitution. The leaders of China had large study sessions where they required all the Politburo members to read from Marx and have discussions of it together. 
they even make like anime propaganda videos about Karl Marx's life. <laughs> you can look that up. You can look up a uh, anime Chinese video, Karl Marx. And you, know, you might be able to see some of the episodes on the Chinese website, Billy Billy. But it, it seems really weird at first glance. Like how, how do you, uh, how do they square modern China, which has large markets, which does not, which has very large inequality that's growing. How is that squared with kind of Marxist ideology? How can we count it as communism or as, or as socialism, the way they describe it? Or they describe their system as socialism with Chinese characteristics. That's the phrase they've used since Deng Xiaoping. I think the best way to understand this is to look for maybe some analogies that are closer to home. In one of my articles for Tablet Magazine, I describe it as it's a little bit like FDR going to a Jefferson Jackson dinner in the 1930s. Uh, Jefferson was almost libertarian in comparison to modern politics. And there is a, just a huge gap between what Jefferson was as a politician and his ideas and what FDR was doing in reforming the entire economy in the United States and trying to, you know, build a kind of a corporatist system. But FDR still considered himself the heir to Jefferson. He was the heir to that tradition. And more broadly, they were both liberals. They're both part of the American liberal tradition. And I don't, I don't think FDR was wrong to do that. I mean, FDR's critics, especially among libertarians today, would say, oh, no, like, there is no connection between like Jefferson's beliefs, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and democracy and equality for the common man and what FDR was doing. But that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. The right way to look at it is, well, what did FDR, not what would Jefferson thought about FDR, but what did FDR think of Jefferson, right? You can, and you can play this game lots of ways. Like another example I sometimes use is if you were to go to the 1600s, a Catholic would look at a Quaker and say, this person is a heretic. They, they, are not, they call themselves Christian, but there's nothing Christian about them. But if you're trying to understand the Quaker, the question is not, does this person belong in the same category as a Catholic? But how does this person's understanding of the word Christianity and of the Bible and so forth shape their practice and belief? So... What do the Chinese communists mean when they call themselves communists, when they call themselves socialists? There's a few things. One is in terms of like ultimate goals. The Communist Party of China's constitution describes itself as having kind of like one ultimate goal and one historical mission. The historical mission we've already mentioned, which is bringing about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The long-term historical goal is the attainment of communism for everybody in the world. Now, the way that the Chinese communists talk about that today, though, is that this is something that will take decades and decades and decades, hundreds of years maybe to achieve. We are not going to be able to achieve that tomorrow. We're still in the very, they call it the primary stage, the very basic foundational stage of socialism. And perhaps in a future where the whole world is developed and living standards are equal across the world, we might be able to come back and reassess this dissolution of the state thing. For the moment, though, one of, but they like they believe that their party exists to safeguard this revolution, this process, so that eventually in the future, communism as we think of it might be able to come about, and that has certain implications for how they think about things. 
they believe one of the elements of their heritage that they hold to very strongly is the belief in a one-party Leninist state. Why? Well, one of the reasons for that is they, they, they believe, in the same way that Lenin did, that multi-party systems, capitalist systems, are too easily captured by competing interests, too easily captured by capitalist interests, because they control the entire state, because they have a grip on both the ideology and on the levers of power, they are able to act in the interests of what they call, quote, the vast majority of the people, instead of in more narrow interests, as they believe happens in the West. This need to maintain one-party rule is one of the very strong legacies that they, they inherit. Another legacy they inherit is this kind of inherent distrust of trade and engagement with the world on its own merits. We often in the West assume kind of that like the the, the public square is kind of a neutral place. That free markets just allow people to rise and fall along, to, to rise and fall with their merits and demerits, right? Good firms rise, bad firms fall, so on and so forth. And that if you have things like free trade, then eventually you just end up with very nice competitive advantages, things end up how they will. The, the, the Chinese view these concepts with a lot of distrust, the Chinese communists do. They often view these things in terms of sovereignty and the allowing real non-state, like, uh, like giving up state control of the commanding heights of the Chinese economy, energy, land, finance, and so on. Giving that up to the free market, giving that up to Westerners is losing sovereignty of their own country and making their system, their internal economic, financial, and information systems controlled by people outside them who are both hostile to their party and hostile to their mission to rejuvenate the Chinese people. And then even the idea of, of socialism itself to bring about development and helping like, the poor people, they regularly and constantly talk about how their purpose is to basically lift up the millions of people they have from poverty. Um, Deng Xiaoping famously said that poverty is not socialism. Lenin said that communism is electrification plus the commune, or Soviet power plus electrification, depending on how you, you translate that quote. And that, that's a very similar attitude to kind of what the party takes at the moment. And so, so all these are some of the major things. And I think the last, the last big thing that comes to mind, one of the major holdovers of how they consider themselves communists, is that they believe that in materialist productive forces and how you can analyze these materialist basis of society, that the way to analyze a problem is to kind of look at the very basic forms of production and that these forms of production end up creating tendencies of history, which are scientifically determined, and which, as I mentioned earlier when I said Xi Jinping was saying things like globalization is this trend of history which cannot be fought, he has reached this view through what he describes as a dialectical Marxist process. And so this very old-fashioned sense that history can be predicted and that you need a guiding party who will align with the course of history instead of fight against it. This is also another element of the Marxist heritage that has taken over. Now, there's lots of elements of the Marxist heritage that they've kind of thrown out, or the Maoist heritage. But many of these elements 
along with maybe some more granular ones involving how they organize their state, how they conduct campaigns, how they think about threats. Those are all part of it too. Um, and so all of this is part of their kind of political heritage in the same way that maybe life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is part of the American political heritage, even though there's a wide diversity of policies that have been pursued over America's 200-year history that, that fall under that same rubric. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that clearly? Yeah. If I were to ask you, you know, what, what do people need to understand? What sort of history or philosophy do people need to better appreciate to better appreciate the sort of the conflict of values between the, the East and the West or to better understand what, what's, you know, shapes Chinese values today. Do, do you feel like that's the answer? Do, do you feel like you've answered it or is there anything else that's, that's really worth noting to really appreciate that sort of conflict of values? Um, the, the, the one thing I would say that's important or I might maybe emphasize it's kind of undertowing a lot of what I said, but it needs to be emphasized. Like another, another important heritage point that comes from this Marxist tradition is that the, the communist party of China believes that they have a system, they call it a path, a culture, and a way that is distinct from the capitalist world. And traditionally, they have a, a kind of a strategy for dealing with problems. They can make friends temporarily and pursue joint interests when needed. And that was true even all the way back in the 1830s. Sorry, 1930s. Um, when they made friends with all of these other democratic parties in order to kick the capitalists out and to regain control of China. But they say for themselves that they're like Xi Jinping said at one of his very first speeches, which I translated. Um, people can look up Xi Jinping in Palladium, that magazine, they'll, they'll find the speech. He says in one of his very first speeches that the uh, goal of the party is to create a socialism which is superior to capitalism and then to gain the dominant position. They don't intend to do this through military force immediately, though they might over Taiwan have that fight. But they do intend, they, they do think of our system and their system as something that can't be reconciled. And they hope for a day when things like universal human rights, freedom of association, independent judiciaries, free internet are relegated not to the dustbin of history per se, but maybe seen as kind of parochial things that only people from small parts of Europe and the United States do, not appropriate for the rest of the world. And they're, they're, they're going about and trying to build that future. And so we have to really seriously consider, do, like, how, what kind of relationship should we have with these people? Is it really worthwhile to be engaged in trade with a country that takes a significant percentage of their growing economy and funnels it into systems of repression and violence that hurt their own people for sure. And one day might, you know, be a ideological and a potential military threat to the, to the wider world. Yeah. That was my 32nd pitch. (laughs) Would you, is it fair to say that the sort of pro-communism anti-capitalism is more about sort of the tribal just sort of, you know, coincidence that the Chinese happen to be the communists and the Americans happen to be the capitalists versus as opposed to sort of just like deep philosophical differences, which is, you know, resonance with... I think it depends on who you ask. I think that's definitely true for many Chinese. I, there are many Chinese who are not members of the party who don't, who don't care at all 
for communist thought or Leninism or Marxism. They, they might agree that one party state is better because they look at Western democracies and think it's kind of like a surface race. There's lots of Chinese like that, for sure. And the younger you go, the larger percentage of those Chinese there are. For people like Xi Jinping, though, he has really a religious devotion to Marxism. He describes it in religious terms. He talks about how party members need to have faith in Marxism, how he has a conversion experience to the Marxist faith. He talks about how, you know, we're going to bring about a world higher than heaven. He really, really believes this stuff. And the party leadership selects for people who do. This, I wonder in 20, 30 years that there won't be kind of a, an internal ideological crisis moment when people like, people like Xi Jinping, he grew up in the Maoist era and has nostalgia for large elements of it. When a lot of these young people who never experienced that world get in the power, then maybe there'll be less Marxism and Leninism will mean less to them as an ideology. But the current leadership, it means quite a lot. And the people who it doesn't mean a lot to are increasingly forced out of power or at least forced to shut up. Totally. And, and so in, in this country, you know, some people have been comparing sort of what, what's happening in, in terms of the threat to some of the you know, civil liberties is sort of reminiscent of, of a cultural revolution. As some people think that's way overblown. I, I guess, so I would ask you, what, what are some comparisons or, or, or is it just totally overblown? And, and if you, um, and also, can you give some color on, on what's really important to understand about the legacy of cultural revolution in, in light of... So, when you say this country, you mean the United States? Yes, yes. Okay, so we're, we're talking about our all the statues coming down. How does that compare to the cultural revolution? Well, you know, funny enough, I had a, a journalist from a conservative newspaper journal email me a few weeks ago asking this exact question. Like, tell me how this, you know, Black Lives Matter thing is similar to the Cultural Revolution. And I wrote him back a letter saying that it, it, I don't think it is very similar. And I, got, I could just read it. This is like a paragraph long, what I said. Okay. So I said, quote, the trouble is, it is not very similar to the beginnings of the culture, Chinese Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution began not with defacing statues and public monuments, but with attacks on people, defaming them publicly physically humiliating them, imprisoning them, torturing them, and ultimately killing them. Tearing down statues did not lead to mass death. Mass death led to tearing down statues. Death was part of the program from the beginning. This program was egged on, directed, and manipulated by a dictator who feared he had lost control of what you might think of as the Chinese deep state and the existing political class. Again, there's a world of difference here from the current environment where the powers that be, our deep state, are filled with protest sympathizers and the political class provides active cover for the American, for the extremes of the current movement. All the major institutions of American life are behind this movement. The major institutions of Maoist life, or more specifically, the individuals who manned them, were the targets of the Cultural Revolution. Finally, the main thrust of the Cultural Revolution, especially in its initial stages, was dismantling bureaucracies that controlled Chinese life. Whereas most of the thinkers that animate this current movement, say people like Ibram X. Kendi, call for vast extensions of administrative control over American life. And most of the long-lasting achievements of this movement thus far, say the change in hiring policies adopted by firms like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, have been achieved by an administrative fiat. Fiat. <laughs> this movement is one big appeal to management. 
From the beginning, the Cultural Revolution was about having teenagers drag management out onto the street and beat them blue. So yeah, that's that's my basic take. I, I don't think the two, like, I mean, there's obvious similarities, right? You have young people who are full of ideological fervor attacking public monuments. But I think there's lots and lots and lots of movements over history that had those same elements, and most of them did not lead to, like, mass death. Cultural revolution ended up with almost 10 million people dead by the time it was over. I, I, I don't think that's the right template for understanding what's, what's going on here. There's no dictator pulling the strings. There's no uh, attack on the deep state, which is what the Cultural Revolution was all about. And this is almost like a very sometimes violent, sometimes extreme, sometimes just colorful appeal to management change things it's not an attempt to destroy management itself that's that's my basic take on the main differences and what's important to understand about the legacy of the cultural revolution in terms of how that informs uh, china today and how we how we engage with them what sort of the you know remnant uh, remnants of, of, of what happened there so the current leadership the politburo members and their generation they they were teenagers in the Cultural Revolution. Xi Jinping, as one example, was personally affected. His father was imprisoned. Sister was killed. Mother was tortured. He was banished to Shanxi. And they, I think one of the lessons they took away from the Cultural Revolution was that mass participation is bad, more or less. That it's better to not have and, and this is kind of qualified, and you, you see you see movements a little bit more closer to the Maoist line. Like, like Xi Jinping in particular has tried to rehabilitate Maoism. In, in the post-Dung years, it was kind of discredited. And he's made a real effort to try and rehabilitate a lot of what was happening in that time. But even he says the Cultural Revolution was a step too far. The, uh, the Chinese phrase is they, they describe Mao as having done 70% good and 30% bad. And that 30% is mostly the Cultural Revolution. And what was bad about it is that it targeted party members. <laughs> they were the main targets. Mao, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution because he was afraid he was losing control of the party. So he went outside of the party to young students and people like that and mobilized them against his own party, which he had been sidelined from. They personally experience the kind of the chaos and the troubles that come from that, and it makes them very, very distrustful of mass movement in general. That they see it as chaos, and chaos is the enemy. They like the model they like now is they go back to the early 1950s when the, the Communist Party was unified and strong and was systematically destroying parts of. of traditional Chinese society and incorporating them into the party state structure. That's the world they look to. They like that. And modern Chinese politics, although it has some explicitly Maoist elements, kind of follows that same line of thought. And things like we're going to build advanced surveillance systems kind of follow along that line where we can have experts who manage the entire Chinese system instead of turning everything over to the masses. And that really is a break, I think, from that part of the Maoist heritage and the Marxist heritage that Mao pulled from. And there's just distrust of the masses by themselves doing the right thing. Because in the Cultural Revolution, they saw 
it's really easy for the masses by themselves to start killing each other. There's this horror writer on, on Twitter, I, I can't recall his name, who had, who had this tweet storm about how, you know, virtue signaling effectively was a sort of tactic used in, in the Cultural Revolution as a way of convincing people and sort of, you know, spreading sort of the, the ideas that they, they wanted to spread. And that sort of virtue signaling on Twitter, in his opinion, serves a, a similar function in some ways. And it can be very powerful in a way of, you know, ch- changing minds and, and making people think that more people think something than they actually believe it or you know the opposite of that is, is sort of enabling preference falsification I, I say that as sort of a segue maybe you have any commentary on, on that phenomenon but as a segue to how twitter is so interesting to you you wrote a blog post on it i'm curious you can un- unpack yeah. how you find that meaningful or, or not obvious um oh actually I, I do think that comparison is a little bit is more as a much more legitimate one uh in terms of things that happen in the cultural revolution now um the, the prevalence of virtue signaling but again i don't think that's unique to, to either of those two situations i think it's very common human phenomenon whenever ideological fervor is high. And it's common even in current China where ideological fervor is low, but people still have to toe the line. Actually, if I was to make a comparison between the America of our year and something in China, it's not the cultural revolution that I would would make it. It it reminds me of something different. I I was in China in 2017. I was in Beijing. And at that time, they had this event for One Belt, One Road, which is China's major foreign policy initiative to more or less build infrastructure for all these countries and then try to tie them all together to China, like we discussed earlier. And they had this big conference that had international people, investors, presidents, construction folks, politicians from all over the world coming to Beijing. And it was, it was amazing how this month when it was happening, it seemed like every single store was putting on some kind of one belt, one road thing. There was a one belt, one road fashion show. They're like every bank had major posters that they're putting up talking about how they were supporting one belt, one road in their loans, how there was one belt, one road, this and that music performances. And when you looked at this, it was almost funny because there's no demand for a like, like from consumers' point of view of, for a one belt one road fashion show or anything like that. The so why do it? Why did every major business and especially all the state owned businesses, the SOEs, why were all of them putting up these giant advertisements tying themselves to one belt one road? What was the what was the purpose? What was the point? It's signaling, pure signaling. And it's signaling to the people in charge of you, right? Signaling to like the party members that are involved that, oh, we are loyal to Xi Jinping. And this is his signature thought. We're we're with the politics of the times. And when I saw in early June, when all these corporations, people like, I mean, like Goldman Sachs, I don't think Goldman Sachs cares about black people. I really don't. I think they're just in this for to be part of the the politics of the moment and it reminded me a lot of what i saw in china for the first time in my life that i ever like seriously take one of these comparisons between china and the united states as being legitimate because the there was this very large virtue signal where the boy scouts and the, all the banks and pbs and every single institution in american life had to do something to show their solidarity even though i'm quite sure many of those institutions 
weren't really that involved. And then they all choose very symbolic things, right? Making a fashion show or for the Boy Scouts, they made a new merit badge. That doesn't really require any actual sacrifices on behalf of black people, does it? It's, it's signaling. Yeah. And that's, a, I think, a quite, like, in my mind, a little bit of disturbing of a, of a parallel, but I definitely think it's there, yeah. It's interesting because some people critique sort of the sort of, um, you know, social issues left uh, as, you know, basically the, the, they say their logical conclusion is to sort of, you know, implement sort of, a, a, you know, equality across every dimension, you know, perhaps starting with sort of a, um, you know, identitarian lens, but the economic, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, left or commies uh, w- would say perhaps, or, or some of them do say that these people, while well-intentioned, are actually enabling uh, capitalism, ena- enabling uh, you know, or, or hurting the communist cause because they're enabling Nike and Goldman Sachs and you know these these companies that can sort of you know, be woke capital, uh, so to speak. And it's just interesting to see that faction happen on on two sides of you know what are calling themselves or or in some ways you know representing sort of communist uh, ideas. Do you sufficiently get into Twitter? Well, yeah. So I mean, Twitter Twitter is full of signaling stuff. In regards to like, what, what, what is my opinion on Twitter? So I wrote, I wrote an essay that went kind of mini viral recently, hit the top of Hacker News, where I described, I think I called it the world that Twitter made. And the basic idea behind this essay was it was a comparison of the old world of the blogosphere and the modern world of Twitter. And it had to do with how, like on, on Twitter, there's so many people these days, so many public intellectuals who don't have liberal strong attachment to liberal norms these are the kind of people where you know you 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 survey them and they say we think free speech is a bad thing so on and so forth cancel culture is something they approve of and where does this come from and my answer to that question is partially that it partially comes from twitter itself this is a generation that was raised on twitter and the norms of political engagement on twitter toxic (laughs) Essentially, what I point out is that if you are on Twitter and you have a large number of followers, I have a little bit less than 20,000. I started noticing this dynamic that I'm about to describe when I had a little bit more than 6,000. But after having written this, a lot of people told me it's around 10,000 is when I first started getting this, this kind of feeling. What you discover is that when you have a large number of followers, you become kind of like a name. And so people stop following you because they're interested in you or because they want to have like a conversation that's worthwhile. Instead, they follow you because you are a part of the conversation or they hate follow you. They, they follow you because you're an example of what they don't like. And so that means that you're like, anytime you write something even mildly off course from the standard narrative, or even if it's right on the standard narrative for your group and you're just followed by enough people who don't share it, you are suddenly bombarded with hundreds, sometimes hundreds of just vicious replies, people questioning your integrity, your sanity, your intentions, everything about you. And you are more or less being shown to the world as an example of everything that is wrong with the other side. In the old world of blogosphere, it wasn't like that because blogs had, they were like little communities they didn't have official borders or lines, but it was hard for something to jump from one little group of blogs to another, one little network. The networks were not connected. 
And so if something like if something happened in, in the blogs that was controversial or that might have upset somebody in a very different group, they never heard about it or read about it. Um, your progressive bloggers all read each other. Your very conservative bloggers all read each other. And there was only a few figures who, who spanned that gap. And then those spaces tended to be more moderated. They were smaller. So you had an interest in being nice to people because everybody kind of knew everybody else and drama was thus personal. And there was a strong incentive not to cause drama in that kind of group. And some of these spaces like forums or, or blog post comments were moderated. Twitter's not like that at all. Twitter is unmoderated. There is no space in between communities. So something that one person says, sometimes just to a few people, can be spread across the entire platform. Hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in a, in a moment, a day or so. And there is no guardrails that keep these communities apart. There's nothing to slow down transmission of things. And there is no moderation. And so what that means is that you're more or less exposed constantly to people who hate you and who don't want to have good faith discussion with you. And if that's the, the environment you grow up in, if you kind of always assume that anything you say is going to be met with hundreds of kind of vicious comments by people who just hate you and are not willing to engage with you and have reason debate, then your faith in reason debate starts to die away. Your belief in free speech starts to die away when you believe that speech is a weapon. Um, the Chinese believe speech is a weapon. I just mentioned that. It's one of the things they inherited from Marxism, this idea that it all comes back to your class and your position and that this speech thus needs to be controlled. It's a foreign power. That's a very seductive ideology to people in the Twitter age when the vast majority of engagement they have on Twitter really is purely just power games. You can't have a reasoned discussion in 140 characters that the whole world will share back and forth through snarky retweets. And if that's what you think the world is, then yeah, of course you're not going to believe in things like free speech and of course, cancel culture doesn't have a problem. It's just an extension of what life already is. Totally. I mean, you also wrote this blog post called, uh, you know, or, or about it's a time to build the Mark Andreessen blog post and how, you know, the, the question, the central question in, in America now isn't, um, you know, what, what can I build? It's, you know, um, how can I get management on my side? And how, how would you characterize sort of, we started to a little bit, the elements that, that sort of led to that, um, they're like, what, what's the biggest thing behind that? And how, how do we get out of that? Hmm. So if you look at America right now, think of the town of people who are listening to this. Think of the town you grew up in. Go back in time 100 years. 100 years ago, the town you grew up in either did not exist 40 years before, or if you live in a city, was literally 10 to 20 to 100 times smaller 40 years before, right? 1860 or whatever. And so what that meant is that the American living in 1900, they had had experience building things, building not just buildings and all the kind of high technology things that like people associate in that Andreessen essay, which I assume your readers, your listeners are probably familiar with you, you being in the Valley. Like he, he, he really focuses on some of these like high visual things, skyscrapers and engineering projects and whatnot. But these people were also built as institutions. They knew how to go in and set up a school board, set up a mayor's office, a post office, a tax collector's thing. 
they did it themselves. They had to. If you're out on the frontier and you want to say, okay, let's create a city council, there is no one to do it for you but you. And so this generation, and maybe even the few that came after it, were, came from a time and a culture that was used to building things from the ground up. That was how they had to solve problems. And they had lots of practical experience doing this at all levels of society. There's a very famous quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the, the famous political philosopher who traveled to America in the 1830s. And he says, here's the difference between American and European. In America, if a tree falls in the middle of the road, the Americans in the neighborhood are just going to gather together and immediately find a way to get rid of that tree. They're going to do it themselves. In France, they're going to go and find a, somebody from the government to go get rid of it. And they'll sit and watch. Americans are a lot more like those 19th century French people now than they are the Americans of the past. Why? Well, Tocqueville mentioned government, and that's part of the story. There's these now these very large governments that handle a lot of problems that we used to be forced to handle on our own. And not just that, but the government has gotten farther away from us. A lot of government action in, say, the early 1900s was done at the level of the city or the county, which... Individual citizens have direct responsibilities to and a strong ability to influence. A lot of that stuff is now done at the state or even at the federal level. And there's almost no way for individual people who are not very powerful or prominent in some way to influence federal policy. Um, But it's not just about government. You could kind of say the same thing has happened in the corporate world. Most Americans live in these extremely bureaucratic environments, a lot oftentimes working for national or multinational corporations who they're more or less living under the thumb of an HR department. They don't have a way to influence the course of that entire company either. And then a lot of the things that they used to do that did give them practical experience with solving problems and building things at the local level, say running their own churches or community clubs, those have been declining for various reasons. Or since the 1960s, the famous book called Bowling Alone, which kind of details this in exhaustive statistical detail, how American social capital has been declining. And so what that means is that American life, Americans are not used to solving their own problems. They've learned since they are children that the way to solve problems is to find the management and appeal to them to solve the issue. Um, nowadays, this is true even for little children. Right? Children aren't allowed outside of their parents' view anymore. And so nowadays, where it used to be, kids had to kind of solve, have like little laboratories of democracy running around on the playground. They had to solve their own problems. And that had problems, right? Bowling, and et cetera. But it meant that kids at least had some practical experience coming to terms with other people as equals and figuring out how to do what they wanted to do, create games and rules. Now... Whenever there's a conflict between them, they just run to their parent or other authority figure who's always within their sight. Does this matter? I think it does. Because eventually the people who become, who've learned their entire life the way that you solve problems is by appealing to the managers above you. And the way that you succeed in life is by making the the, the people level above you happy um, by jumping through their hoops so you can get into good colleges and get onto whatever the next stage of hoops is in your life. If you actually do get a position 
where you are the manager, where you're the person who's supposed to solve things, figure things out, you don't have a lot of experience doing that. And perhaps Mark Andreessen, he says he, he laments um, the lack of building that happens in the current America. That we aren't able to set up things to solve the coronavirus crisis. That we aren't able to make changes in our system and our government. That we're not able to build big things. Part of the problem, I think, is exactly what I'm describing. That Americans aren't used to building things. And even in our social movements, like Black Lives Matters, a lot of what we do is not really about building something that lasts or building coalitions or bargaining with people you disagree with, which is what the civil rights movement was very much about, kind of very aggressive bargaining with the powers that be. The Black Lives Matters is, in many cases, an appeal to management. Them and every other social organization try to petition the powers that be to change their ways. And there's good and bad things. I mean, like the good thing is if you're, if you're a conservative is where this is a turn of the cultural revolution. Well, that, that, that's a good thing for you. They, they don't know how to, <laughs> to do the things that the cultural revolutionaries are doing. But it's a bad thing that, number one, they can't solve their own problems. And number two, neither can anyone else. Or that's more or less my thesis. Is there anything that can get us out of this? Uh, or like um, if you were making a game plan, uh, a culture game plan, yeah, how could we? And that's that another related question because you know I, I heard you on another podcast talk about you know how how you're a conservative and that there are certain sort of conservative reactionary movements, both like you know some on the trolling side and some on sort of the um, you know make America great again side, and, and, and but not really presenting an alternative sort of moral framework or just vision of the future that is really inspiring in the same way that the other side is offering a moral culture and a vision and a sort of an infrastructure around it. Comment on that. My, my answers on this are very, very tentative, right? I feel much stronger in my diagnosis of the problem than in a, a solution. But there are areas of America where building still happens. Silicon Valley is one of them. Startup cultures are building cultures. These are places where you're full of young groups, not always young even, but where you're full of groups of people who don't have anything to do except solve the problems themselves because of their size and their position, often at the cutting edge or the front edge of, of some market. They can't rely on legacy institutions to do it, and they can't rely on large bureaucracies to do it either. So there are like little patches of success in America, and part of, if it really is a cultural problem, maybe part of the solution is trying to find these patches of success and giving them more cultural power. Uh, so maybe we should be trying to uproot <laughs> a lot of the cultural authority that people on say part of like the old East coast establishment has, you know, the government media, old style corporations, et cetera, that are, that are kind of entrenched in these old ways. And especially the, the cultural side of things, be it the making of books and movies and certainly journalism writing and try to redo them out West. That might be, that's just one potential answer. And so that they kind of are imbued with this, this other culture, this more pro building culture. Um, I would like to see people in Silicon Valley. And then also too, like, the, like this is part of the problem though, is a lot of people in Silicon Valley, they don't, they don't really think in terms of like responsibility for the rest of the country and the world, right? Like San Francisco is famously this, this political crapshoot. 
that can't solve any of its own problems, even though it's really obvious what I, what some of those solutions might be. And the, 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 a lot of the big players in Silicon Valley have, have just said, well, that's not our business. We're remaking the world. We're not remaking San Francisco. I think that's stupid. Um, San Francisco and the cities around it should be playgrounds. Well, that's the wrong word. They should be sandboxes for new political reconstruction for trying to build up new ideas, new structures, new things. If you really do believe that new, like, I mean, this is a critique you could take of a lot of people, right? There's this people like Matt Iglesias might write a big long post on why parliamentary systems would be better than the United States system. And that like, we, he really wishes we would change our constitution to be that way. If that's what you really believe. And the answer is to go somewhere at the local level and start doing that. Try and change the constitution of Nebraska or something. Or try to do a new governance model on cities in California, places where you can make a difference. Because differences can be made at the local level starting out. And I'm, part of the reason why I think that's important too is that past examples of, of, of institution building in the United States almost always start that way. Right? There's been two large waves of institution building, uh, government institution building in the United States history. One was in the 1780s, 90s, and then one was in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s. And both of those started at the state level and then built up to the national level. You never would have had the national progressive movement if you didn't have Wisconsin, Wisconsin model style stuff. You never would have had the federal constitution if all these other states had not been trying to mess with their own constitutions at the same time. And so for us in America, yeah, I think that people who are interested in building, who are interested in creating this culture, they need to look for examples at the lower levels, not at the top, but at the lower levels where they can actually have influence and try out these experiments and creating something better or newer or more appropriate for our current moment. And then I also think it would be nice if we could try to maybe give the values articulated in kind of a lot of Silicon Valley culture more purchase with the rest of the country. And that would involve, again, people in Silicon Tom Valley funding and thinking harder about, well, okay, how do we extend our cultural influence? I, I'm not 100% for Silicon Valley. You mentioned I was conservative. And so in some ways I'm really against Silicon Valley culture and, and, and California culture as a whole, but at least there's people there who can do stuff. Um, <laughs> and I'm really despairing the people in charge of doing stuff for much of the rest of the country. Yeah. I have a, a a friend who says that there's only four sort of major um, sort of worldviews or, or tribes that have real you know mega constituencies in, in in today's world, and it's it's sort of one is sort of this far leftism that we're seeing in, in the West, sort of you know some people call it cultural Marxism, some you know some people call it much nicer names. Uh, also, there's this far rightism that we're seeing uh, you know as as mm-hmm. a backlash or you know that coordinate, uh, you know coincides with it, uh, which is populist nationalism. Uh, then there's sort of, you know Catholicism and you know, and, and then there's Islam, and what that doesn't leave room for is sort of this classical liberalism as, as sort of having a on either the left version or the right of having a sort of major constituency. Well, that's a classical liberalism fault, uh, and that's I mean I, I've written about that. I wrote about the National Review. Uh, you mentioned the podcast has on where I talk about this issue, and I think the the central problem that classical liberals have had is that they have not engaged really in a culture war. And conservatives as a whole have they, they, They've engaged in a political war over culture, 
which is not the same thing as a culture war. They, they ceded culture over to the liberals in, you know, and they decided they were going to fight for the courts and for the government. And so what they don't have is they don't have, they don't have, it's not even that they just don't have control over school curriculums or over Hollywood movies or the music or the things that create the culture that we live in. It's that they never even have created alternatives. I've been a teacher. I've seen how there's, well, even the, so like the 1619 project is a pretty new thing in the world, right? They already have a curriculum that they're planning to teach based off of the 1619 curriculum, I mean, project in various schools at different levels. That's how, that's how the, the left thinks. They think automatically, okay, how can we turn this into something we teach? Or how can we represent this in music and art? The right does not think that way. Yeah. And neither do the, I would say the classical liberals of the center who have like, they, they just tend to think like, Oh, we have this neutral public sphere. And as long as we are committed to maybe proceduralist rules that make sure everything's fair, it will turn out all right. Um, and they never really thought about, well, actually you have to create something compelling. You have to be able to have like a worldview, a purpose for life. And past liberals did for most of American history. They did. They haven't tried so hard recently. They've maybe been a little bit too smug. They assumed, you know, that they had won. Well, actually, they haven't. And if people who are committed to liberal values, I am one of them, even though I'm conservative, I'm, I'm, I am properly a liberal in, in the classical liberal sense. I, I believe in things like freedom of speech and mm-hmm. so forth. If, if you, and pluralism, even, I believe in pluralism. Yeah. But, but if, you, uh, if you can't defend it, these things at the level of the like the kind of life that people want to live. You can't paint a good picture of these things. If you can't defend your values through art and media and thought, then yeah, you're going to lose. And they did. Conservatives lost badly. And this is even true for things that like maybe a lot of classical liberals now, things like gay marriage, they, they don't care about that anymore. But part of the reason conservatives lost there too, is that they, they, they had no way to hold the line on culture. They could only hold the line at the political level. But at that point, it's too late. Yeah. Um, by the time something comes to the Supreme Court, you've already lost the war. It's just a matter of time over like, you know, when, when they'll flip. And, and, and you could say it's, it's because the, you know, they, made a strate- they just didn't focus on it and it was a strategic blunder. You could also say that sort of they had, you know, and I'll just say classical liberals, liberals more broadly, just had structural disadvantages in a couple of ways, which is one you know, the fact that inherent in classical liberalism is sort of a, a, a pluralism, as you said, is sort of this openness to other ideas where uh, that allows other ideas to come in and parasitize you <laughs> and you have no sort of, you know, uh, immunity to them. It, that's sort of one potential disadvantage relative to these other extremist uh, ideas that aren't pluralistic. And the other disadvantage more recently is the, the internet, the sort of the, the economics of attention on the internet just reward more extremist, you know, reward polarization and, 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 and thus sort of the, the rational, ra- rational open-mindedness of, of classical liberalism may have, you know, Patrick Deenan has his, has his book, right? Liberalism has led, its success has led to its failure. Uh, has yeah, led- but I, I disagree with Patrick Deenan. Um, strongly, actually. I have a series of blog posts called against Patrick Deenan one, two, and eventually there'll be more. Um, <laughs> I think his argument is fundamentally wrong, but I, 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 but that's a separate issue. I think the internet question is partly correct. Like it does incentivize extreme takes, but that doesn't necessarily mean the extreme takes will hold. 
if you had had the internet in 2001, the way we do now, like social media internet, I don't think there would have been any appetite or room for like the extreme, oh, the terrorists were the real good guys take to have more hold than it, than it did. The culture just wouldn't allow it. And, and then this isn't happening in every single culture in the world either. And in some places, liberalism is the, the subverting ideology. And the Chinese certainly believe that. They, they, like, they're afraid of it. That's why they made all these crazy internet censorship regime to try and stop liberalism from, from subverting them. Uh, across a lot of Asia, the American version of liberalism is an extremely attractive ideal for a lot of Asians who've never experienced it, of course. So I, I, don't, think, I don't think that liberalism has an inherent disadvantage uh, in that sense, just because it's pluralistic or because it, like, it allows debate from all different sides to be in there. I, I don't think that is enough to dethrone it. I think that it has more been a victim of its own success in a sense, that the liberal revolution came and transformed the world, but the world still sucked. <laughs> it's kind of like the problem with Barack Obama. Barack Obama more or less like, defined himself as the American project in one person's biography. He built himself up to be a person who was the... He was, he was hope and change. He was the... American civic religion distilled the immigrant, the, 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 the immigrant, the minute man, the slave that's been freed all put into one biography. That's how Barack Obama believed he was is how he showed himself to the world. And it's how his followers conceived of him. And he was this prophet that's supposed to lead the promised land. He comes president. Did things get any better. Not really. And thus you have things like Ferguson and stuff as kind of a reaction to that, that sense of betrayed promise. I think that's a big part of what's happened with liberalism. Liberalism won the Cold War and it had a good go in, but then there was problems. And the people who supported the broader liberal system had very little ability to see these problems. And when they saw them, they had very little ability to solve them or to engage with them at the cultural level or the political level. And that's led to this disillusionment. Disillusionment and has described credit in some ways. That, that's my take, at least. I think, um, I, I really do think that if the Cold War hadn't ended and we were where we are now, we probably wouldn't be having this sense of complete disenchantment because yeah, the, the, the game would still be afoot. It's having won the game and then turned out that life still kind of sucks, right? That led to a lot of these problems. And, and I think this was clear really early on. There's a series of movies from the late 90s that I think make this very clear. Um, Office Space, American Dream, um, um, The Matrix. Like there's, there's a lot of them that kind of take this as its major theme. That, um, what's, what's Fight Club? Yeah, there's a lot of them that, that kind of see like, okay, we won. Our, our ancestors had these great moments to define them. Right? That's one of the speeches in Fight Club, Great Depression, World War II. What do we have? You just go to office work and that sucks. That's part of the, the issue, I think. And the people who succeeded in liberalism, the people who did well in it, were not in a position to understand younger generations' anxieties or the frustrations of people who had not done well, say, you know, in Trump land because of the way the system had gone. Yeah. I could be wrong, but that's my take. 
And so is your fundamental disagreement with Deenan that it's not dead or, just, or it's not like un, un, you know, brutally under attack or is just the way in which he describes it uh, you know, incorrect? And then separately and lastly, if you had $10 billion or you know, money was no object and the sole purpose of that money was to sort of you know, renew or save or you know, uh, uh, liberalism, what, how might you think about you know, what need, how to spend that money? Hmm. So, okay, Dean, real, really quick, my, my cr- criticism of Deneen. I think that he has a very false narrative of where liberalism came from, and because of that, has false ideas about where it might go and how, like, the idea that we might be able to place it with something else. I, I think in, a, in the American context, ideas of post-liberalism are fantasies. I hang out with a lot of people who talk about like post-liberalism and coming up with different things. Cause you know, they say interesting things and they're, they're actually thinking about the problems that matter. But I, I think it's kind of a, a fantasy. And the reason I say that is because uh, like Deneen, he has this idea that liberalism is almost this invention of, it's about ideas, ideas that were invented by people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Thomas Jefferson and these ideas were imposed upon the population and that led to everything terrible in the world 300 years down the line. Uh, I think this is silly. I think that these philosophers did not create liberalism so much as they were the philosophical articulation of norms and, and practices that were deeply embedded in Anglo society. Um, in, in England and then later in English colonies, Australia, America, Canada, the Anglosphere. I'll, I'll give an easy example of this. Um, one of the fundamental institutions of American liberalism is the absolute nuclear family. Um, people in England, going back several hundred years, unlike people in many other countries, um, only married, like when they married, they left their house and like the, the husband and the wife went and established a new, a new house. And the, the family, for the most part, consisted of them and their kids. And then when their kids grew up, they'd go and leave and go somewhere else. And then you could have inheritance go to whoever it would. Although in England, that was a little more complicated. In America, the inheritance really could go to whoever it would. Now, this is, and then the other important thing here is that by legal right in the English speaking world, children have the right to marry whoever they will. Custom might go against it, but legally the control is in the children's hands. Now this has important implications. This is very different from most societies. Um, in classical Chinese society, for example, the women would leave the house of, that they grew up in and they go live with the household and who they're marrying into. So a household would be a man, his wife, all of his male sons and their wives and their kids all living together. In the Middle East, it's oftentimes that you'll have like daughters will be marrying their uncle's cousin, their uncle's son, their cousins. And so families will be living together in this like networked into a tribe. There were no tribes or extended family kin networks in the old American system or the old English system. People thought of themselves from the beginning as individuals and they were legally empowered to do so. They did not have kin networks to rely on. And so they had to rely on neighbors and businesses on civic associations because family was not the thing which they could rely on or the thing which they thought themselves mostly of. They didn't think of themselves as like, Oh, I'm a McGregor and I have this big clan to support me. Um, and I have to go do honor killings to revenge. What happened to my third cousin? 
they thought of themselves as an individuals first. And this, this extreme individualism, is, it's baked in. It's baked into the system. It's baked into the marriage system. And fathers and mothers couldn't stop their kids from marrying who they would. And so in America, you have these large immigrant communities. And as much as parents might have wanted to keep on and hold on to their traditions and hold on to their beliefs and maintain kind of a strict community, their kids can go marry whoever they want. And that really quickly is kind of like a sorting machine that divides people up into kind of atomized small units. John Locke didn't invent that. Thomas Hobbes didn't invent that. That was a something that made the, the English-speaking peoples, and to an extent the Netherlands, different and unique for like 800 years. And there's lots of examples of this. There's lots of examples. You can read people like Alan McFarlane's The, the Origins of English Capitalism that talks about how most of the legal rules and commercial practices that we would think of as the kind of like bourgeoisie, bourgeois, sorry, <laughs> the bourgeois capitalist mindset that, that Deneen really hates, a lot of that goes back to the 1300s. Legal-wise, the legal regime of, of liberties and of representation and of things like juries, those sometimes, some of those are medieval institutions, other ones are hundreds of years old. And I see the American Declaration of Independence and stuff like that as being expressions of the spirit of these people of how they understood and dealt with the world. And this matters because a lot of that stuff is still here. FDR is not the same as Thomas Jefferson, but they were both characteristically liberal. A really good book on this, by the way, that's written for like normal people to understand. It's not written at a super scholarly level. It's called America 3.0. It, it, it talks about a lot of these, the heritage of a lot of American institutions and practices and ideas. And if you want to do a deep read, they have this fantastic, fantastic bibliography which is quite scholarly, but they, they wrote it for normal people. So it, it's, it's not too hard to read, but it talks about a lot of this stuff. And so even in the current world where you have people who reject liberalism, I don't think it's realistic. We, there, there are like liberal versions of, of dystopia. There are liberal dystopias. Maybe we're in it. Uh, Alexis Tocqueville kind of predicts them. People like Ray Bradbury, the, the dystopia author, he has a pretty realistic version, I think, in, in the novel Fahrenheit 451 about what a, a liberalism and social atomism taken to its extreme, what that looks like as a t- tyranny. But there isn't, like, that, that, that's a possible option. Maybe we go down there. Maybe we, we go the full way and we become so atomized and split off from each other that we have nothing nothing but the government to appeal to. And there is nothing that connects citizens together anymore. And we spend all of our time on watching TV, which is more or less what that guy predicts all the way back in the fifties. And what about your $10 billion plan to save liberalism or renew liberalism? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, cause like I said, I, I kind of feel like liberalism will be with it no matter what we do. Like it, it's not going to be gotten rid of unless it might take a long time to get rid of it. It's just a question of do we have a healthy liberalism or an unhealthy one? I would want to take that $10 billion, I would say, and put a large part of it towards exactly what I was talking about earlier, thinking about education and cultural production, trying to find people who make films, music, 
YouTube productions, whatever, that can give a popular face and compete against alternative value systems. And then uh, education. There needs to be a huge pushback on the education front. And some of that is a matter of just like creating the syllabi. Some of that's a matter of creating training institutions. Like just look at what the left does. They have all these institutions that, that, that do this stuff. And thinking really hard about doing this stuff in doing this same kind of stuff in reverse. Now I'm a cultural conservative and I, I believe that that is one of the best ways to keep kind of liberalism. And so I would also want to see some of that diverted to especially conservative concerns, but some of your readers may disagree with me on that one or listeners may disagree with me on that one. And perhaps lastly, and going back to, you know, grab back questions here a little bit. If you, if you were determining whether what our policy towards, you know, solving whatever problem exists in academia with sort of Chinese interference, what would you do there? And then separately, what would you do on the, um, you know, TikTok or other sort of Chinese apps in terms of what should U.S. policy be towards them? Um, so I'm not a complete expert on on TikTok technology stuff, but my impulse is, I mean, put enough pressure on them until they sell. That's essentially, I know that, that's kind of what I think we're doing. So we'll see. Um, towards academia, in regards to China, the big problem isn't censorship. I mean, there is a small problem with people feel like they need access to China, and so they're not as willing to say what they would say otherwise. Or maybe they have, maybe they're Chinese and they have family members in China, so they're afraid to say what they want to say because those family members might be targeted. That that's that's the real tragedy of a lot of these influence interference operations. But what really needs to be done is that there needs to be alternative research lines for people who are ready to study China kind of in a serious way. There's not a lot of people who, who study Chinese Communist Party in terms of its documents, like looking at what they're saying um, in terms of here's our ambitions, here's our goal, here's the threats we see. You, to do it's kind of hard. They speak in this, this weird communist language, like this very jargon-laden Marxist inflected speech that's hard to read and which uses a lot of slogans and code words from like 30 years ago. And a lot, I mean, political scientists don't focus on that. They focus on formal models and progressions. Historians kind of learn how to do it, but they don't, they don't do anything past Mao. So I would like to see more work given that like, there should be money that's given to people who are, to have their priorities right when it comes to how to, how to study the party at the moment, this moment in time. And that, that funding doesn't really exist. Most of the people who do it are like ex-CIA people or ex-military intelligence people who actually spent some time on the problem. There's very few academics, I can name them on one hand, who try really hard at this kind of stuff. It's kind of sad. And it's mostly because there's not a lot of funding or, re- or training programs publicly available. Yeah, totally. That's a great place to, uh, to, to wrap um... This has been a fascinating conversation. My guest today has been Tanner Greer. Uh, If if you liked what you heard and want to go deeper, I highly recommend checking out Tanner's blog, scholars-stage.blogspot.com. Follow Tanner at Twitter, scholars underscore stage. Also uh, support him at Patreon. Uh, Tanner, thank you so much for, for coming on. This has been a great episode. Thank you again for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.